Funny old year. Um, got married a few weeks ago, so that was. I know. I saw in. that. Yeah. Congratulations on that. Cheers. Cheers. Yeah, we're supposed to, you know, be doing it over there, but obviously, Corona. Yeah. Stopped it was meant that. to be in. It was meant to be in France, wasn't it? Yeah, because T's T's from the south of France. Um, so yeah, fingers crossed, we'll be able to do something. But you're invited anyway. Um, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No. Yeah. <laughs> Well, you know, when we get when we get the chance, we can have a little party, can't we? Oh, it's going to be a big one, dude. <laughs> yeah, or a big one. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Cheers for doing this, guy. Anyway, and uh, uh, thanks yeah, for um, take a look at the questions and stuff because I know the Paddingtons didn't bother. So, <laughs> <laughs> why break a habit of a lifetime? You know. <laughs> Just gives an idea about you know your background in general photography and how you ended up being in and around that indie scene in the Nazis? Absolutely. I mean, um, I, I grew up in London, so was always, like, immersed with whatever music or scene was going on. Um, and in the early 2000s, I was living in Camden Town, so that was, like, everything's on your doorstep. You walk out the door and go down to all the, the Barfly, Coco, when it was still Camden Palais, and... Um, just a plethora of venues and the record stores were still there. The market was happening. Um, so I was got back into photography around 2004, um, picked up a camera and was just as a hobby, you know, going to shows, friends shows and started shooting that way. And I guess it coincided with the digital first generation of digital. So that made it like easier to, to gain entry into that field. Cause before, you know, it's film and it's expensive processing labs and all that. Um, and this was kind of that instant gratification of digital where you take a photo and you see like, Oh, boom, there it is. That's like awesome feeling. Um, so I just continued as a hobby. And then within 10 months, I actually, um, got a, a email from NME saying, come in for an interview. And I guess that, that had come from just putting stuff online. And back in those days, it was fan forums and post your Flickr link or whatever to the fan forum and then the kids could see them. And it was just a kind of snowball effect. Um, so, yeah, the enemy went in for the interview and, and they were like, want you to start shooting? So I was like, this is amazing. This is like what I'd you know, set out to try and achieve. And it happened real quickly. Um, and then it just kind of took off from there because obviously that platform weekly magazine they got all the relationships with the publicists the bands um and yeah it was just kind of thrown in at the deep end which was awesome do you, do you, do you remember like um the first like photograph that like kind of put you like um in touch with the or like you know like maybe what the enemy had seen like is that really impressive? you know how they how they were and it was like because libs had kind of had their first split and then peter was all over town doing his stuff with baby shambles and pat and um drew so yeah. i think it was really an intimate shot of peter from uh it was the macbeth i think actually oh yeah yeah i spot um and he was playing 
a harmonica, which actually Adam Green gifted to him, which I found out, found out later on shortly. Um, right. So it was this kind of nice combination, but that ran as a double page spread. And I think that was, they were, they saw me taking these kind of like more intimate pictures of Peter. And um, I guess that was probably their impetus to like bring me in or whatever. Um, but really that all led, that was all there because of you guys, the, you know, Paddington's. Um, those yeah. were the first early shows. I remember one with you. It was at 93 feet east in Whitechapel. Um, yeah, oh, there was there was so many. Yeah, was that the PlayStation thing? No, it wasn't a PlayStation. Oh no, 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 no. Well, they had yeah. started cottoning on and like trying to put their brands associated with cool bands. It was just a regular kind of show. Um, it was the Rakes had that was right. I do remember heroes. That, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Mighty so, Is that was that on Brick Lane? Exactly off Brick Lane. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And that's it. There were so many gigs, but that was probably in 2004. And that's when I met you lot. Because um, essentially, I was really immersed in a totally different musical scene and genre. It was that drum and bass jungle scene. My, my teenage friends right. were, were all like MCs, producers, because they're bedroom DJs, you know, essentially. So again, it was like an accessible art form that people with not a lot of cash could, could get in, involved in. Um, and so I go to pirate radio stations and all those warehouse parties, but that was becoming commercialized and losing its edge. And you know how it is. Things evolve over time. People drop in or drop out of the scene. And yeah, I was like, Oh man, guitar music's kind of making a comeback. Cause the whole Britpop thing for me was almost a turnoff. It was just too much shoved down your throat. So yeah, I guess I did a one eight and came back to the guitar music and the bands I met was the Paddingtons and the Maccabees and Foles, all these sort of that generation. And uh, it was exciting. And, and like, I was like stoked to be like, Oh wow, here's another scene on my doorstep and, and people like yourself and everyone, it was so inclusive that that was refreshing too. Everyone was just pals basically, weren't they? Yeah. Yeah, it got you came away with this feeling of like no one's no one's being excluded and no no one's judging anyone. Everyone's and everyone's going out making an effort to get dressed up and it was a lot of love and I, I don't know, it was just uh it's kind of a beautiful time. And did you have some like personal favorite bands to take photographs of? I guess the best ones live usually tended to be the best photos, would that be true? Yeah, of course. When you're looking for a, a live photo, you're looking for that animation and like people who aren't just standing there strumming the instruments and looking that too cool for school thing, which I, which I guess was a phase for bands. But no, our, our generation, our lot, everyone came out with gusto and um, kind of turned that around. But I guess the Hives were a great live band. Uh, obviously, the Strokes, Baby Shambles, and all their offshoots, uh, Libertines. But Jarvis Cocker for me is still one of the greats who I, I love to shoot live. Um, Iggy Pop moves like, you know, like a million miles an hour, but he's just this little ball of energy. And of course he's like legendary. So that helps as well. But yeah, acts like that, I guess I would, I prefer to go, if I'm getting commissioned to shoot a band, I want it to be something that I vibe with personally. Um, but I think the challenge is like, yeah, not knowing a band or, or thinking, oh, this one could be tough to shoot and then bringing something out of that 
is equally as satisfying as like someone who's just going crazy on stage. But yeah, yeah. Back in the day, I guess Selfish Cunt they were a good band as well. To all those Rhythm Factory bands, it was all awesome. <laughs> and I suppose it's like. Um, you know, looking at all your photos, you clearly have like a personal relationship with all the bands as well. It's like, is there a level of trust you have to build up with people? Yeah, for sure. I mean, I always thought like long term, even though you don't know how long something's going to last. Or I didn't know that I was going to be doing this still 15 years later, but I'm super happy that I've been able to. Um, but yeah, over time, you get to know bands more and, and that scene was pretty open to and not a lot of ego so yeah you build up the trust and it goes two ways and you know yeah over time these things kind of grow and like for example yeah you might start out shooting live stuff only with that band and then they like you and like having you around and trust you and and uh suddenly you're doing an album cover for them or something which is something i i really take pride in because that's lasting you know, and hopefully something iconic or resonates. Because, you know, when we were kids, we were putting up physical album copy, the artwork on our on our walls as posters and stuff. Um, mm. And, yeah, that that's part of music world that, that I love and try and try and get more of those album covers under my belt. Oh, which album covers have you done out of interest? I've done um, a Franz Ferdinand single cover for Ulysses. That was, that was a pretty funny, instantaneous one because um, they vary. Some are sit down and you talk about it more like a music video, like what's the look, what's the treatment going to be? Does the musician have a specific thing in mind or are we just going to go for whatever? All, all different types, but um, that one was very instantaneous. But um, done the Baby Shambles one, um, the Harma Superstar one, uh, Adam Green, uh, I've done about 10. I'm trying to remember them all. Oh, yeah, Delicate Steve. Um, but, yeah, they're all equally as, as valued because, like I say, that's that's part of the, the art form that I love. So what's your take on that then, like, when you've got a new photographer in and around? Are you a bit wary of them at first or are you just kind of loving it? Um, do you know what? Like, I think with those guys, like, we probably didn't even think about it too much. And we we just like to kind of, like the relationship with someone like that is it definitely has to be trusting, obviously, because like when there's certain things around that you don't want to probably make the press or whatever, like obviously you know, there has to be some kind of trust in there that you're not going to be like pictured doing something. Yeah, I was like, going to allude to that. that. <laughs> Exactly. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Right. There's certain yeah. things that, that stay out of other people's business. It's not their business, you know. That remains between you and the band. Yeah, uh, that, that was what that was going to be one of my questions. Actually, like, have you ever been in a position where you've been taking, you, you know, like you you've taken a picture of something that you probably that you think that you probably shouldn't be, or like, like I guess like. Have you been in like a position where like what's the most like weird position you've been in? I think it's more like like you say, once you have the trust and the band are familiar and like having you there and there's that implicit trust uh in place, I think you're less worried about what you're documenting. It's more about what you're gonna yeah. put online or who you're gonna share it with. Are you gonna submit that? No. Mm. Um and that 
like I say, remains, that's for your eyes only, yours and the band's only. And there are certain yeah. memories you don't always want to share, you know. Um, but, yes, I've had instances where uh, researchers for TV shows have called me up and been like, oh, we've seen this, or do you have this photo of someone looking this way? And you're like, yeah, mate, but that's not for you. And no, I don't want to get paid in that way when it's like, you're going to yeah, cool. lose the trust and you're going to break that relationship. And what for? Like a few grand, maybe even more, but long yeah, time. It's just it's like, never worth it. Ah, it's and it's like, you know, all the respect in, in, in that time, like that everybody had for each other. Like it's just disgusting that like some of those journalists or whatever just want to do that. And yeah. Like, and those are short term people who to me are in it for short term gain or to make a name, but they're not really in it for the love of the scene and the, and the music. Um, so no, yeah, then them sorts get avoided, but, and also they get found out pretty early on. So just looking at your photos, obviously it's um, a very exciting time, like in and around the baby shambles, I imagine. <laughs> um, are there any like standout stories uh, from those gigs that obviously probably involved you as well, Tom? <laughs> Well, I got I got one that stands out, maybe for the wrong reasons, but also it showed the power of those baby shamble gigs. Um, it was the Astoria one where Peter didn't turn up, and it was like three hours and getting close to curfew, and the kids just were like went mental and started ripping up the place. And then the security got heavy handed and were like picking up cables and like literally whipping kids, and it, it was a bad scene. Um, but that was obviously memorable. But I think mm-hmm. in terms of like just the great shows were like, uh, I think they improvised a lot on stage, you know, in those those early shows when Pat was still in the band. So I remember a Christmas Eve Queens of Noise gig at Barfly. And I've got to tell you, that you know that venue, it's probably what, 150? Yeah, tiny. It's, like, it's a little bit like the Adelphi and all. Yeah, I think the Adelphi is even slightly bigger. But... Um, that floor was bouncing to the point where I was like, I don't know if this building's <laughs> up to code where it's going <laughs> to hold the floor. But yeah, it was just an amazing manic show. Like they're playing Gang of Gin and songs like that, all, all these favorites and the ones you don't really hear that often. Um, and I just remember thinking, yeah, shit, this is, this is like mind blowingly amazing. And, you kind of think, oh, this is going to just the way it is for a while, but there's so many factors as to why that that couldn't be the case. But um, and then you're craving for those kind of shows again, you know, in years gone by. But um, yeah, I don't know. There was a Brixton show yeah. they did. That I love. I don't know. All most of them in those early days were. I guess we. I guess we took them things for granted. Thinking about it right now as well. <laughs> Imagine go. Imagine how much you'd love to go to that show right now. Yeah, we didn't maybe realize. I think we realized that we were in a good place, but we didn't think it would, could just end yeah. you know, how it, how it kind of did. But all seemed to be over as fast as it started kind of thing. Yeah, and when you're younger, you're like a bit naive, I guess, and thinking, oh, yeah, mm. here we are for the long haul. Because it did feel for a point in time where, especially, I mean, all over the UK, but in London, where I was primarily based, um, it was just like six nights a week. You could go to a, a, see three or four bands and then DJs afterwards. And it just was, a, it just was amazing. There was just 
yeah so I guess we did maybe take it for granted a little bit but not not on purpose obviously I want to ask you about bands like the Strokes because judging from some of your captions and stuff on Instagram you had quite a good relationship with Albert Hammond is that right yeah that came about also through Five Clock Heroes I guess they were opening on tour in Europe with them and I got invited to come along and and I was had a couple of commissions to the enemy in a short space of time. I guess it was album's first solo record. And yeah, we hit it off. And then actually in 2007, enemy wanted someone to be a correspondent on the ground in New York. So I was asked to do that. And then when I moved over, um, those were kind of the first mates that I had over here. So yeah, it was like a really easy transition to New York because of those guys, I guess. And uh, their extended crew and family, such as like the Dead Trees and Matt Romano. So yeah, it was kind of um, like very organic and, and and natural. It was awesome. Is, it, is that Matt? Was he like the drum tech or something? He was, yeah. And then he opened yeah. that bar, Black Market, and uh, yeah, right, right, that's where right. everyone hung out for about five years. Yeah, I suppose we've not really talked too much about the community of bands in New York. Obviously, talk about it a lot in the UK, but was it quite? Um, like a big community around the Strokes? I'd say it was more um, selective in a way. Like maybe because when I arrived, the Strokes had already been going for, well, five years and um, on their third record, I guess. But it was an East Village kind of scene. And it was, it was as you'd expect, kind of this cool New York happening. So there was people with names around. But um yeah if you were in it it was like very inclusive again and and felt like family and but i guess it was a bit more closed off like london was just more of a a free-for-all and it wasn't about name so much but yeah um honestly for me in new york when i discovered the diy scene going on over here in brooklyn um that was when i was like oh these are like the the people that i'm like feel like awesome to have met them because they grew up in Brooklyn. They're all been playing music since they're kids and they're running these venues six nights a week also, which is what I've missed about London a lot when I first moved here. And then, yeah, uh, sorry, the venue is called Shea stadium and it's set up by a band called the Soso goes. So, um, they had that running until 2018 and then they were forced to shut down um but yeah it was actually probably the longest running diy venue but yeah you had a whole plethora in in north brooklyn where i am and um death by audio uh glasslands uh 285 ken so you literally had this strip of doi venues and it was way more reminiscent in that way of london in that sense what what year was that then 2007 i was over came over here and I was coming back for like the main festivals, Glastonbury, Reading, stuff like that. Um, initially for the, to about 2010, and then I was doing more of the American festivals and stuff. But yeah, um, 2007 September, I moved here for basically to cover CMJ, and then have been here ever since. <laughs> yeah, fair. A bit more exciting than London. I mean, I guess I'd lived in London for 27 years, born and uh, raised. Right, yeah. So it was like, is that I wouldn't have probably in my mind i wouldn't have left london for anywhere else except new york because i've been visiting since around 2002 and i was like yeah enamored with it 
and already had a bunch of friends here so it was it was definitely the spot to move to but um yeah i've had a daughter since i've been here got married um so yeah a lot's happened i guess it's been a third a third of my life now it's mental <laughs> uh, whereabouts in london were you from originally from north london good north london yeah. jewish boy uh, um, you're, an Ars- you're an arsenal fan now, yeah? that's right guna yeah my uh Damn. my stepdad mike took me he had a season ticket all through the 70s and 80s and they were so bad he gave up his season ticket and then i started getting into it he took me to the games and they started becoming amazing <laughs> and he didn't have a season ticket no more but yeah you could get into the ground like i remember paying six quid to sit on the lower lower west stand i think it was you queue up on the day get on the, get on the tube and uh walk to the ground and pay your six quid and you're in but those days are gone so now i've been watching on streams and uh it used to be a nightmare you couldn't get any football here um and now it's like there's more football on the tv here than there is in the uk i'm told (laughs) yeah i was gonna say but it's uh a lot easier like three o'clock on a saturday to watch it in america definitely i mean yeah i used to wake up at seven and then there's a supporters bar down the road and uh, they'd have like the Liverpool game, the Arsenal game, and the Chelsea game going on. So the, it was like wall to wall. Everyone's drinking because they're expats. <laughs> so it's like seven thirty. The beers flowing, and that was fun for a while. But then, yeah, I was like, no, nah, I need to just be able to stay in bed sometimes and watch this. <laughs> so because I was over there for my thirtieth, and um, it's a Champions League final when I was there, and we were, I did try and book a table at um, Jamie Carragher's bar. But I think it was sold out. <laughs> I didn't even know he had a bar here. He's got like an Irish bar over there, I think, yeah. Well, maybe that's the main Liverpool supporters club then. Yeah, so we ended is up it? in some sports bar um, by the river, which was quite good. But Always end up in an Irish bar, don't we? <laughs> <laughs> we <go. laughs> I, honestly, I think one of the times that I went to New York, um, ended up in an Irish bar. I'm just like, what? why am I in an Irish like, I don't know. <laughs> Like always up just a lure of in I don't know yeah, what I mean, same uh, with Barcelona as well I went there that, once that pint of Guinness looks good uh, uh, even better abroad I tell you reminds me of home but uh, yeah I have a funny little story actually um, not so music related I was leaving Texas uh, for South by Southwest I wasn't quite ready to go back to New York so went and met a friend in Kansas because I'd never been there before um, didn't realise it's the biggest Arsenal supporters like club or whatever in america and it's the cup final against hull so that would have been oh, what, 20 all right 17 well we all know the score but basically i'm like <laughs> staying in this cheap motel got no money i had a six pack of beer had three left and i'm like i get booted out of the motel in the morning i'm like to the guy like oh it's the cup final like he has no idea what that is um, like can I just stay? He's like, no, no, someone's moving into that room. You need to like fuck off basically. So I take my little hold all. I'm like, I can see downtown. So I'm like, all right, head that way. Step out the motel. First thing that happens to me, a guy asks me for a cigarette and then wants to sell me some meth. And I'm like, no, it's like, it's good. It's like 10 AM. <laughs> no meth for me. Thanks right now. Um, so I make my way downtown. I see it's dead. It's like, there's nothing happening. I'm like, all right, look for something sports related so i see the college basketball arena because all the college sports here are are, are massive it's crazy and then i hear some rumblings of noise and i'm like okay it's a bar it's open go in it's like a basement thing and there's hundreds of guna american guna fans and i'm like yes found the game 
walk in, <laughs> got no money for beer. I'm waiting on a check to clear. So I, I had very little money and like my friend isn't around till later. So I crack open a beer, find like an empty plastic glass, pour it. And a guy catches me. He's like, what are you doing? I'm like, uh, you know, money's tight, but he's like, fuck that. You, you got an accent. Where are you from? I'm like London, Camden. He's like, what? Yo, you all dude here from London, Arsenal fan. We're buying him drinks. <laughs> So we're down as well at that point. And then Cazola takes that beautiful free kick. Um, and <laughs> yeah, the rest is history. But then they took me out later afterwards for cocktails and showed me around Kansas. And uh, that was a pretty awesome uh, little adventure that turned out good. Yes. Kansas City, if you're ever there, <laughs> put on an Arsenal shirt. <laughs> I've seen like the Cribs like post about your photography so is that another band you had a good relationship with absolutely i mean we all love those guys i mean tom will obviously be able to attest to this but yeah they're just the best and they've always stuck to what they do and they do it well and yeah um got taken on tour with them in 2009-10 for the ignore the ignorant tour in the uk where adam green was supporting um and he had just released his minor love record which i did the cover for so that was like just an incredible tour with mates and uh, obviously getting to see the uk again after a few years of living here and every show was just mental and crowd surfing and of course johnny marr was playing at that point so it was awesome to like get to know him and spend like a month with him and be like Oh, this is a bit surreal. I'm just hanging out with a Smith <laughs> every day. And yeah. He's like asking me if I want a beer or I'm all right and introduced us to his family. And yeah, that 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 was definitely one of the tours I remember most fondly. And yeah, I'd been seeing them since again, like 2004. I remember the first gig was Stylish Riots, was a, a club night and they headlined and you're just smitten right off the bat, you know, as these guys mm. from Wakefield and you're like, damn like wakefield's possibly yeah. cooler than us then <laughs> yeah as soon as you watch it as soon as i saw them like the first time there was just something different about the cribs weren't there yeah i mean and, and then when you talk to them afterwards and having a pint with them and i don't know it's universal love for those guys i think all our american friends or all, all the english lot everyone's everyone's a fan of the cribs but um yeah, that was like amazing for them to welcome me in on that tour. And um, obviously every time they come and play New York, I am there front and center and uh, taking photos and then going out for, for bevies with them. Yeah, and they must have provided some pretty good photos live. Obviously used to be a bit of a, a mad band live back in the day, didn't they? Yeah, well, Ryan was always cut up from something and bleeding. <laughs> so that's <laughs> always fun. Uh, yeah, actually like one of my favorite portrait sessions with them was with Lee Ronaldo because um, obviously he did the song with them and uh, we went to his place in, in the city and spent the afternoon just talking about music and looking at guitars and him showing us memorabilia. Uh, so that, yeah, again, was like something you got to tick off the list and be like, wow, shit, that's pretty cool. <laughs> I think you're probably like our most comprehensive guest in terms of different people you've worked with and different type of artists you worked with in terms of like some major pop stars and stuff i mean what's that been like what's like the difference between like photographing 
the baby shambles in uh, Barfly to let R.E.M. at Wembley? Yeah, I mean, it's, I think for me it was like, you want to accept every assignment, every commission, every opportunity to shoot. And it didn't matter so much. I mean, for me, the venue was always secondary. So like shooting live earth at Wembley stadium with Madonna and beastie boys and, um, Phil Collins, whoever else, it's just like you're in the moment and you're not thinking about what's going on around you apart from when you're looking at the crowd for some crowd shots. Um, so in the live thing, you've got the barrier still. You're the closest you can get to the, the artist, the musician, but you're still there, you know, doing your thing and they're doing their thing. But the size of the venue never bothered me. And I think, again, being thrown in the deep end uh, enemy when you're like, all right, Isle of Wight Festival, first time shooting, go shoot the Prodigy. And you're like, oh, okay, hang on. It's a lot of strobe light. It's going to be from the side and back. So you're like, how do you make this work? Um, but you just find a way. Um, those smaller venues, if you've got a flash, you're fine. You're going to make it work. Um, if you're just using ambient light, it can be real tricky. But then again, you always come away with something where you're like gratified. But uh, I think for the portrait shoots, it was more about, okay, I haven't met this famous person. You might have 15 minutes. You might have an hour and a half. You've got to create that kind of, bond quickly and once you have that in place that's equally as important as being able to take the photo as well it's getting that rapport so like in music sometimes like you can make um you know like when recording or whatever you can make make an accident that really works like do you find that with pictures as well like maybe more when it's like a um outdoor no location you're just taking a stroll with the artist and you're basically like finding stuff along <clears> the way those can be some of the best because you'll see someone walking a dog or whatever and you're like, Oh, look, can I borrow that dog? That Husky it looks, and then whatever it is, yeah. or something walks into the shop by accident. You thought you wanted the frame clear, but then someone walked into it and actually made it better for sure. There's happy accidents like that. Yeah, and if you're yeah, using yeah. film, there's double exposures and stuff like that. But mm. when you're shooting for magazines, a lot of the time it's like, you've got your brief stylistically, they want something like this. So you might want to take a few shots in a different style and, and, pop those in on the end but yeah it, it always varies like for example with um Kathleen Hanna I had like 90 minutes it was just me and her in a studio and that can be daunting if you're like oh if you don't get that bond or rapport going then it's like that's a long time to be shooting you know so yeah like I say getting that rapport going it's kind of key in finding the common ground and then as you shoot more bands of whatever ilk you you have more people in common so I could say to this person, oh, I've had an interaction with this person who you're friends with. And then that's like an icebreaker or whatever. And, uh, yeah, cool. But yeah, I think if you're daunted, I mean, it's good to have some nerves, but you can't let it get the better of you or the best of you. And you got to remember that these are, yeah, they are like talents and people in their own right who you respect. But one-on-one, you got you got to just be like, at the end of the day, they're a person just like you and me. So, you know. Yeah, does that become like a skill in itself, like uh, knowing how to talk to different people or kind of like gauging? I believe so. I believe so. And um, maybe I have a shtick that works for me and you kind of use that and then you tweak it. But yeah, it gets so, so much easier when you've built a relationship and then you've got 
these interactions happen more frequently and then it's just like second nature but yeah for those first time meets with like big names most i gotta say for the most part there's very few divas um some some uh people who you'd expect to be like highly strung are the complete opposite you know so you can't go by the persona that you've seen in public you're gonna find yeah. out quickly do, do you do you have like um a massive diva moment people late <laughs> courtney love was one who was quite late but i expected that so i wasn't like thrown by it or thought it was disrespectful um i gotta say out of 15 years of shooting i've only ever probably had one interaction where i was like walked away and was like oh god this person is a dick <laughs> um <laughs> and that, you're not gonna say no, I don't. I don't. <laughs> <laughs> nah, he's a lovely dick. He's not a total. Um, <laughs> sort of head, yeah. But um, no, I don't mind naming it because I'm sure the artist wouldn't give a shit either. But um, and it wasn't necessarily his fault in this instance. Um, this was a situation where they had a full press day. Uh, Pitchfork was assigned their time before me. Also, this is still for doing for the enemy. And they went way over time and you could see he was getting like antsy and a bit frustrated and they kept pushing it, eating into my time. And then it got to me and it was just like coincidental that they came back over while me and him are discussing what we're going to do. And they were like, Oh, we just need this one more thing. Do you mind? And like, he kind of just went, and unfortunately that meant he wasn't in the right frame of mind to even start our shoot. Um, I managed to get a few, portraits of that moment actually <laughs> which was him pacing around in a circle angrily going off on his management um so really i don't blame ariel pink i blame pitchfork but yeah for the most part i gotta say most people are pretty decent i mean at risk of just like uh giving you a list of bands to talk about but because you've like had such a w- wide range of bands there's some people we haven't talked about like, we haven't really talked much about the Arctic monkeys which is a bit mad yeah. considering how big they were in that period but did you start like photographing them early on and kind of follow them through a bit i did i mean when they came out it was like a game changer obviously um and we were all really excited about them and then they were doing the myspace thing and doing it on on their own terms which gives you them even more like credit and credence whatever um but i didn't see them until leeds festival and again 2005 maybe um and they're playing the tent I think it was a Radio 1 tent or whatever the, the secondary tents was. Literally, within minutes of them starting, I felt bad whoever was playing the main stage because no one was there. They were The whole tent was, as far as you could see, and then outside, as far as you could see, double. And you're like, shit, something special is going on here. And I was shooting from stage, side of stage, so you really got a sense of like uh, how big, they were becoming um and then yeah because of work and um i got to document them a fair bit they put on a a gig at the lancashire cricket club the wine house the coral the parrots that japanese band uh beatles cover band uh so i guess it was their mates and people they respected and that was like an amazing time um but then like like i said i moved to new york and the autumn of 2007 so they don't really just started going yeah uh, i was gonna say they did come quite they came actually quite quite late on in in our kind of 
little yeah, bubble. 2006, like seven was really yeah. where they had their their, their launch mm. pad moment, um, and then it just got astronomical and kept growing. But in 2008, they were doing their side projects, Last Shadow Puppets, with Miles Kane, and they came over and played Soundfix, which was a small record store in Williamsburg that's now gone with most of the good stuff from Williamsburg. Um, they just did an acoustic thing, and that was their USA debut. So that was kind of like amazing. And um, we hung out, and I took some portraits of the lads, and then we all went out drinking like we normally do. Um, so yeah, friendly with Alex when I see him, but uh, he's out in LA. I'm here, and I probably got as much time with them as I could in in their busy schedule, and and then me moving here. But um, yeah, their growth was so fast that you're like, hang on, you kind of miss that phase of like, I guess they were in Sheffield and playing all the the venues there where you could be more intimate and see them up close. But in when they came to America, obviously they hadn't broken here yet, so. Maybe only for the first year they were playing like venues 500 to 1,000 and then it was just like, oh, they're playing stadiums now. So that kind of sucks. <laughs> <laughs> I actually just found, um, just on your Instagram, found a picture of Alex Turner and the caption's quite funny. It says, I think it's gig in 2010. And he said, this was a famous occasion I was grinded on by Sean Diddy Coombs. Is that Puff Daddy? <laughs> that's, that's Diddy. <laughs> That was funny because obviously um, it's the Highline Ballroom, a good old venue that, um, in Manhattan. And yeah, shooting the show, I'm roaming all over. They have a balcony section and uh, I'm like leaning kind of through it and I'm pretty low and I'm tall. So I guess I was maybe, my butt was pushed out and I feel someone like grinding and I'm like, oh, ha ha, someone, you know, making a joke to their friends and it goes on for a you know, longer than I felt comfortable. <laughs> and I'm a pretty uh, <laughs> tactile person. But I'm like, kind of give a shrug and then just carry on shooting, getting some nice angles and the light's good or whatever. And then... Was, was he getting some again. nice angles as well? <laughs> yeah, exactly, mate. It was bump and grind. And I turn, and then eventually I'm like, turn around, I'm like, all right, all right, like that. And I look over and it's uh, Diddy smiling down at me. <laughs> and I was like, well, all right, it's you, so... I'm not going to give you shit. That was pretty funny, actually. <laughs> yeah, because I remember watching some videos where he was, he, like, he was like a big fan of them, wasn't he? Like, as soon as they kind of got big. I think he was a big supporter, uh, yeah, um, which is always nice to see, you know, other genres and the people in those genres cross over and enjoy other forms of music. So, yeah. But, yeah, he's quite a soft individual, let it be known. He's, uh, from his friction on me anyway, it was... Uh, <laughs> he was gentle thanks for listening to this episode of 22 Grand Pod if Naughty's guitar music is your thing then you might enjoy our Patreon page where for £3 a month you will get access to the following series the Naughty's Deep Dive where we go through the likes of the Stalking Pete Doherty documentary in painful detail my favourite 2000s album where patrons and other guests come on to talk about their favourite album of the era 
Legend or Landfill, in which we go through enemies' top 10 albums of each year from 2001 and see if we think they are indeed legendary or for the landfill. Unsigned stories, where we chat to bands that didn't quite make it in terms of signing that elusive record deal. We also have fan stories, where I talk to people about their memories and opinions on all things Naughty's Indie. You also get early access to any main podcast episodes, and it's also worth checking out the YouTube page, where you can see extended video versions of the interviews, as well as plenty of other bits of commentary and opinion. All links are in the description. Now back to the pod. There was a funny time I was on tour with Chris Robinson. This is, you know, he's 90s really, um, Black Crows. But, um, so he kind of left the rock and roll and was doing a new project called The Chris Robinson Brotherhood, which is basically a Grateful Dead kind of vibe, jam band. Three-hour sets, um, and I arrive on tour in Cleveland and find my way to the bus in the venue and uh, had two nights of shooting with him and two days of portraits. And we went like record shopping, all this kind of stuff and thrifting. But on the first night, you're trying to like, you know, like I said earlier, build that bridge on that rapport. And uh, this was an instance where I was like, kind of put on the spot and I was like, this will really help break down any kind of like, I'm an outsider coming to the camp because the tour manager and Chris were getting something out of a bag. And I was like, Oh, what's this? And I didn't recognize it. And I'm like, Oh, what is this lads? Like, and he's like, um, tour managers like, Oh, it's gloop or goop gloop or goop. And I'm like, uh, not familiar. And he's like, oh, it's basically concentrated mushrooms. Very strong, but you only need a little bit. And he's like, you want some? And I'm like, yeah, sure. <laughs> <laughs> so I eat this stuff and I'm waiting to kind of come up and the gig's starting maybe like 15 minutes in and I've gone up on the stage to shoot and I'm like, oh, I wonder when this stuff's going to kick in because I'm not really feeling it. <laughs> and just as, of course, just as I've had that thought, I'm shoot i'm looking through the camera and then another camera appears and then quickly in succession there's like two more and then and it's like i have eight cameras (laughs) i'm holding eight cameras right now and i'm like okay definitely feeling it let's let's ride this out and i'm like you can do this you've shot shows before many times well with alcohol obviously but I was like, you got this, don't worry. And uh, yeah, I was uh, in the moment, feeling the music. (laughs) Definitely mixed that audio and visual components up. Um, So at one point I'm like, okay. How did did that turn out? Well, it was a three-hour show, so (laughs) it was an intermission. (laughs) That sounds long. I'd go out into the car park to have a cigarette, managed to roll it see these flashing lights so of course i'm tripping so i'm like "Ooh, flashing lights what's going on here so i walk towards them and it's an ambulance and there's a uh, ambulance lady and a guy hunched over and he's like projectile vomiting and i'm like whoa (laughs) that's awesome uh are you okay like do you need any help and she's like no i'm trained thank you this is he's good he's just got to get that out of his system i'm like what's wrong with him It's like annoying her asking all these questions. She's like, oh, it's just a bit too much of this, a bit too much of that. He'll be fine. Don't worry. Um, So I'm like, 
walk off, leave, leave her to it and then get back into shooting. And, uh, probably came down about two hours after the show and, uh, sat in my hotel room and, uh, reviewing the photos. And I'm like, Oh, thank fuck. They all came out pretty good. <laughs> so it was good to know that you your sixth sense or whatever it is kicks in and you're just like, I got this. And I guess that's just knowing your camera and like your lenses and whatever. But yeah, that was pretty funny. Um, and then my girlfriend at the time came because uh, she was driving her tour van back from Detroit to New York. So she came and picked me up and watched the second night of show. Um, but I definitely had some residual feelings from the, the mushrooms, which I think she <laughs> picked up on. <laughs> but yeah, that was a funny one. Um, Did I get tempted to do that again then? <laughs> not so much with the mushrooms. No, nah, I think it's better than certain other things you can take that, that are probably more appropriate <laughs> but yeah i'm glad i did it and yeah tested myself in in the uh astral planes and came back okay yeah i did want to ask you i suppose it's a bit more of a serious question but when we had mark bowman on we kind of asked him how things have changed for um music journalism over the years and i just wondered how it's changed for um for music photography is it has it changed since like the impact of the internet and everything yeah i mean it's definitely changed over time. Um, I, I think there were some digital snobs at the beginning and then they had to convert. So there was like an even, even playing field, I guess. Um, but so I, I'll never say anything bad against digital. Cause that was like kind of the thing that got me in. I was doing like some graphic design before that and, and taking my own photos and, and like messing around with them. I think the idea originally was to make tour posters and then, the photography kind of took over, but, um, I'd say it's changed in terms. Well, now, of course there isn't anything to shoot, um, like live music or anything, but yeah, I think digital probably put a lot of people off from before because the pits, especially at festivals just became like uh, ridiculous. There was like, I remember Coachella one year, there was probably hundred photographers there, maybe more. And it felt less, special i guess and maybe blogs had something to do with that but again blogs are, are great if it gets more music to more people uh, more new music especially as well but it's changed for me maybe in the fact that i don't get to as many gigs as i'd like to before um but in terms of the equipment and everything like that not really nothing's changed yeah i guess it's just more accessible so there's more people doing it but uh oh well yeah obviously me working in magazines this whole time and then seeing them die off one by one like enemy q i've contributed to for years um it's just sad and it's like a bleak landscape right now for anyone aspiring or getting into it now i'm like where do you want to end up because for me when i started i was like oh yeah if i can get an enemy um that's a weekly magazine they're like the pinnacle top of the game but now it's like, where, where are these outlets? Is everything online? Uh, how do you get paid? How do you like live? So I worry about people starting off now, but all these creative industries are just like kind of followed the same path, I guess, isn't it? It's like it's just turned out really difficult for everyone. Yeah. I mean, you think the internet was this great equalizer and really it's just taken so long for people to adapt publishing groups and magazines and there's no advertising revenue. It's yeah, they haven't figured out the way to make it work. Or 
I, I just personally don't believe that people don't want a physical copy for the fans to pick something up. Like we said about putting shit on your wall. Um, and then for the people contributing, it's like to see your name in print and on paper is like a huge rush every time. So yeah, I don't know. It's all kind of just sad. I don't know what to think about it. I'm just trying to like maintain really, um, and keep going, but yeah, I don't know. Um, we need more labels, I think, like Rough Trade and and these kind of like Domino and ones who who really stick by their artists. Um, I think we need that even more now. Partisan is a good new one that um, or newish one that I respect what they're doing. But yeah, it's it's uh, who knows what's going to happen, and I just hope it it has some sort of I don't know what the sense of normality would be now even. So yeah. Um, I guess for me and a lot of my colleagues who were at Q, it's like now what is, is kind of, that's where we're at. So yeah, I don't know. Uh, what did, what did Bowie say? <laughs> Do you mean that interview about the internet? Yeah. What did uh, Mark Beaumont? Sorry. We all uh, right. I was going to say, <laughs> well, he said the numbers online for enemy, like far outweigh what they were in terms of readers back in the day. But we were, um, I say we, I'm not with them anymore, but after nine and a half years, I feel like it's we. But yeah, um, we always had the biggest traffic online. Uh, even back then, that was not in question. The website just wasn't good enough and we should have adapted to that more early on, um, for sure. But yeah, um, so I don't know. In, in terms of numbers, Enemy was, and it still has the most traffic out of, all the music websites, I believe. So I don't know if that's an indicator of anything except there's just more people online and have more access to computers than they did 10 years ago. Yeah, and there's obviously a lot of clickbaity stuff going on as well. <laughs> yeah, of course. That's, yeah, the traffic, uh, circumventing traffic to your feed or your site, just, yeah, for these bullshit clickbait, like you said, it's horrible. Um, yeah. You won't believe what... Um... I don't know. The Saved by the Bell cast look like now or something like that. <laughs> That's kind of links. Uh, we ask people if there's like a an album or a song that kind of makes them most nostalgic about that period. But I guess you kind of had the best seat in the house for a lot of those gigs. So is there a gig you can think of where you're kind of completely blown away by the band at the time? I don't know, because honestly, it felt like such this big... Uh, Extended family between like Paddington's, uh, Maccabees, Rakes, Arctic Monkeys, Mystery Jets, uh, Art Brute, Baby Shambles, Cribs, Adam Green, we talked about Future Heads. Uh, did I say We Are Scientists? Um, Black Lips, all these bands. Like for me, it was all new and exciting. So it's hard to pick one out of those because I was like fervently around those bands and going to as many of their shows as possible. Um, Cause for me, it was the bigger element of this, like this crew or this extended like musical family and everyone was doing great. But um, again, maybe this isn't cause they were nineties too, but um, Brian Jonestown massacre. First time I, I saw them yeah. at the Astoria. Fuck me. I was like, this lived up to everything I'd hoped for. You'd seen the documentary um and then I actually ended up meeting their manager when I moved to New York and he told me some cool stories but um 
yeah, we went in a big crew. So this was before I was even on this side of being in the industry and being like the mainstay or whatever you want to say. Um, I was still a fan, like a regular punter. And we went all my like friends and homies. We went probably 20, 30 of us in the group, bought tickets, got some MDMA <laughs> and, um, danced our fucking socks off. And, uh, yeah, it was just like, that was affirmation for me. Like, there's so much to explore and I've got this whole scene to like delve into. Um, that was definitely a moment. And I, I guess I just started maybe shooting, but it was still hobbyist, still for fun. Um, but that was kind of maybe something that pushed me into wanting to do it full time. Um, Brian Jonestown live. And they didn't fight and they didn't sabotage the show. And it was amazing. Um, so that was a plus, but maybe we'll circle back around to that um because i'm sure there is someone who should jump out but i've just been to so many shows now and <laughs> uh not to say they all blend in but yeah it's hard to to think back now but yeah there was too many amazing times but in terms of like paddings and stuff like really that i didn't want to underplay how them bringing me in and like as a friend and like a colleague it just felt so special and I love what they're doing. Like anytime heart song came on, for example, the hairs on the back of your neck go up for me. And I was like, I was, yeah. Wow, was that one of your, Oh, for that sure. Was, that was a big, big one for me. Um, yeah, that, that's actually, that's actually the, my, probably my favorite song to play live. That was heart song, you and me. Um, but yeah, 52 pound. It was all great, man. Like, and I guess, yeah, I was like, I had, I was untainted because I come from that totally different scene of that like drum and bass, and this was all brand new. So to meet the Paddington straight off the bat and feel that love and the family vibes, and it, that's always hold dear in my heart, and you know, probably helped also push me into where I am today. So thanks, guys. <laughs> <laughs> no, we spoke about this on a, on a lot of episodes, but yeah, just the whole. The whole feeling around that whole scene was just like, yeah, just a bunch of It was of special mates. times. It was, yeah. I mean, fuck, I was just running around town with my camera, with my mates, you know, like me and Andrew Kendall were in each other's yeah. pockets a lot and we'd go to wherever, Yulu, there's a show that, and then we'd go uh, Water Rats. And I mean, it was just never ending in the best way possible um, until it did end. <laughs> but um, it just was, yeah. I mean, incredible. I'm, I feel fortunate to have, because, you know, people always look back and I, I do too. I'm like, oh shit, I wish I'd been around in the semis for Johnny Thunders and Dead Boys and that mm. whole Lower East Side scene. And you're like, oh, I wish I was there in the 80s, 90s. There's always something, Sonic Youth and yeah. whomever. But, 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 but we really had it gonna, good, man. People are going to talk about that time, like the same kind of nostalgia like, you know. and like wishing they had been there for sure. And we were, so we should be thankful and we all played a part. And again, we, we created good vibes. And I mean, you guys playing love music, hate racism, putting your like heart and soul into everything and inspiring. And uh, I feel like love music, hate racism should be, or something like that should be going on right now, to be honest. But, yeah, no, do you know what I was thinking that when, cause I went to some of the, um, the protests in lockdown and, I was just thinking, we've we literally, obviously it's been going on forever, but 
there should be that shit should be going on right now, yeah. Cause yeah, way music, more music music yeah. such a big powerful platform to Yeah, it's a unified fight with doesn't, shit like doesn't yeah. divide and it's yeah, I was actually talking about this with Matt Wilkinson, um ex enemy colleague and beats one uh, host now, but yeah, we were saying the same thing as what you just said. Like I was saying, how you look up at the people that came before you and you're like, damn, I wish I was around them. Working for Mojo magazine has really given me uh, that ability because they use me for a certain section of the magazine and it's normally, well, it's always portraits. Um, and they seem to have been a lot of those 70s icons that I liked. So like David Johansson from New York Dolls. He uh, mm. and you know, I built a studio at my house at the time, and he came over and he was vaping and drinking cups of tea with me for like a couple of hours. And his wife was there, and you're just talking about those days. So to get that insight to those days, the seventies, and that scene, it's always special. So I had that again with Alan Vega, who was obviously in suicide. And I think actually it was one of the last people to photograph him before he, he sadly died, um, 78, I believe. And he, that was also at his place and it was just me and him and he's a big Mets baseball fan. So they, that year they're awful. They're perennial losers. <laughs> so it was nice to see him watching them and they're like, they actually won the divisional championship that year. But he was telling me all about growing up in Flatbush in Brooklyn with Neil Diamond and um, how suicide came about and just telling me, again, stories about New York. So I would, like, always ask these questions and, like, get these people to, like, impart a little bit of those times and stories to me. Um, again, Stephen Malkmus I did recently before all this COVID stuff. Oh, yeah, that's a good one. I'd love uh, to have a chat with him. Yeah, and... I wanted so badly to talk about uh, his earlier days with Silver Jews, but yeah. David Berman had just recently um, or passed away. Uh, so I didn't want to, didn't know if that would be too raw for him, but he mm. was talking about, yeah, those early days of being in Jersey and playing in New York and going to the knitting factory and stuff and seeing Galaxy 500 and his, his contemporaries. But um yeah, every time you get a chance to meet these people, it's like I'm not shy to like be inquisitive, basically. But um, that's not so much a funny story, but that's just uh, relatable, hopefully. Yeah, yeah. But I got a good one, Dave Grohl. Um, I'd met him obviously over the years a few times, shooting him, and I hadn't seen him for a bit. And I was uh, uh, had been to Medieval Times, which I don't know if you guys know what that is. It's an arena. No. And there's knights that literally fight and ride horses and you eat like with your hands and drink massive jugs of beer and all that. Oh yeah, I've seen that on, uh, what's that Jim Carrey film called? Cable. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Brilliant movie. So we, we done that and um, we came back to a spot in, in Manhattan, the Jane Hotel, and they have this like roof bar deck. And we're still there with our like leftover medieval times, crowns and swords or whatever getting getting some drinks and dave turns up and apparently he's like a super fan of medieval times and goes regularly and he was like oh you guys you just left me you just come from medieval times like which one we're like the one in jersey he's like what color night was yours like i always get purple i mean we were like green night he wasn't very good 
but you know, he's trying on the crown and like such an affable person, like one of those nice guys in rock and roll tags, you know. That I can imagine him like, kind of suiting that kind of medieval style to be fair. Yeah, the beard and the hair as well. And he's got that gruff voice. But yeah, but yeah, the Franz Ferdinand single cover I did for Ulysses, like I was saying earlier, it was an instantaneous one. Alex lived down the road, like four blocks, and was like, oh, guy, can you do um, the single cover for us? I was like, fuck yeah absolutely thinking like oh next week and we'll meet up and talk about it he's like oh no no not like now can we do it now i was like yeah put some trousers on and shoes <laughs> ran over to his <laughs> met the band and they're like okay so the theme is we're getting all our favorite photographers um to do uh an image where you, it looks like you've just walked in or stumbled upon a crime scene i was like okay uh that's that's do that and uh because <laughs> uh, he was adamant like we gotta do it now and then i'm like all right well let's get on the street and it was this time of year and dark and drizzling and then so fortuitously an ambulance pulled up and um parked and in the middle of the road and had its lights flashing and i was like all right let's use this quickly so alex was amazing he was not you know uh worried about getting dirty and was like the one who was basically the dead character. So he was on the floor a lot um, with rigor mortis and stuff. He, he was really good. Um, <laughs> and the rest of the band were doing their thing around him. And we had literally like five minutes to shoot it before the ambulance driver came back being like, uh, what are you fucking weirdos doing? And yeah, got that, went back to <laughs> That's his. That's so cool. Had a whiskey and we reviewed the photos and his whole team was there. And then they were like, yep, that's the one. And it was done just like that. I was talking to someone recently and... I didn't really realise how big Franz Ferdinand were in the States. But um, they're saying like they were probably the biggest band from the UK in America at that point. I feel like everyone knows them here. Like it's a name that definitely people recognise. And yeah, for sure, they were selling out big venues. Um, but I think they're at a level where they have maintained and will always have that same following, uh, which is big. But I think, sure, there's probably English bands now that might have overtaken them in in, in size of, you know, the, the draw or whatever. But, yeah, they're, they're uh, I mean, they've been going a long time now. It's 2002 or, yeah. Yeah, and they were like 30 when they first exactly as well. So. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, that is true. So they're still going, but a new lineup, I guess, Um but yeah, well, anyway, did one of them leave or something? Yeah, I think a couple. I think a couple have left now and been replaced. But yeah, also if you, I wanted to touch on a little bit more of the DIY scene here because I really feel like that needs bigging up and like that was like such a for me to find that those people, that band, and the and the space that they created. Um, it, it, yeah, it was really important, and I guess to keep a DIY venue going for like nine years is impressive. Anyway, but they recorded every single show, which again was like. Oh, that's fucking cool. Um, so they've got an archive now that you can, anyone can go and listen and they have, you know, it was a, a curated space for new bands, but also um, Conor Oberst would turn up and play or Harmar superstars played and um, uh, whoever, you know, there would be occasional drop-ins of like big names. But yeah, every show is recorded. And honestly, I think that space kept people together. Um uh, one of the, the main proponents of the place who wasn't actually involved in the running of it, but became 
like its biggest fan was uh, our friend Mark Fletcher, who had a band called Stringer, and he uh, he said that we lost him uh, um, just over a year ago. And I think honestly, if that venue had still been around and that community space, we might still have Mark with us. So yeah, I just wanted to give them a shout out. The Sosa goes, Alex, um, Rish, Ryan, Matt, and uh, Zach. Some of the loveliest people. So if you're ever in New York, try and f- find one of their shows, and uh, you'll, you'll be equally as impressed with them, I guess, as I am. But um, I don't know much about the Sosa uh, Glows. Like, well, you know how I found out about them was um, Tim Chester did a story on them for NME in 2006 when they they were just kind of kicking off, and they were like this punk band from New York, band of brothers, and. Mm kind of like the Cribs, kind of forced to play with each other because they're from Bay Ridge and there wasn't like a lot of music happening down there. So they they made their own band and and it's yeah. great. It's one of these underappreciated bands of our time. No, it, I've heard like a lot about them like more recently as well and I'm, I'm def- I need to like, uh, I need to look into it a bit more. Yeah, you like, should put on Blowout and Kamikaze, those two records, but... Um, yeah. It, they're fucking awesome. And I guess they're like kind of my American equivalent of you lot, of you lads. So right. that was like nice, nice to find them. But um, yeah, and just again, with no ego and no like that inclusivity that I've been searching for, I guess that's what they, mm. they kind of brought to the table as well as just being yeah. lovely people. You mentioned um, Andrew Kendall. Did you have like kind of... A community of photographers as well like did kind of like stick we did stick one another kind of thing we did we had a little gang and obviously you know um those of us who were working for enemy um we all got on it was like a, a rivalry but a healthy one like if someone couldn't cover a show i could i would happily cover it for them knowing they would do the same for me um so yeah it was like sibling rivalry almost but um yeah, bunch of girls, bunch of guys. But Andrew was um, well. He was doing stuff with you. I think he did your first. Photos. He did, yeah. yeah. He did. He did. Um, yeah, he did quite a lot with us at the start, actually. And he was always at parties. That's what. That's what I remember. Yeah, definitely. You'd always see him. You always see him at three in the morning at someone's house. <laughs> you know what I mean? He, I, mean and, and, uh, I remember him getting loads of pictures with us. Oh God, they're on. They're on his site or on the internet somewhere, but there's pictures of us in a shower or something with this girl. And like, I just, we'll see. I'll never forget like that house party that we were at. And like, <laughs> I'm just fully clothed in the shower and then some crazy fan running around naked. But um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, Andrew he Kendall really took them, I think. He, he documented a lot of that early stuff. Um, you should probably get him on, but. He, I'm waiting for him to release all those that era of photos one day because he really, him and Peter obviously were very close for a while. Um, so there's the, those shots of him and Wolfman in the hotel. I think it was the Columbia, yeah. maybe. But um, yeah, he's probably got loads of hidden gems. So should definitely reach out to him. But he, yeah. I guess I was around and he was already there and he was gracious enough to kind of take me under his wing a bit and yeah again more of this inclusivity um and not this like uh shit his uh, maybe competition or something you know like that just didn't exist 
So it was lovely, mm. yeah. Um, was you was you friends with Roger Sargent? I knew Rog again just because he was doing all the Libertine stuff and a lot of pizza stuff. But um, yeah, yeah we, you meet all these people through just being around and out. Um, so I knew Rog. Um, but yeah, I think it's funny because really from 2004 to 2007, that's, that's all I was in doing documenting of, of London, but I sure fit in a lot, um, fitted in a lot. And the impact it had, it still resonates so wholeheartedly with me, even though it was probably two and a half years of just documenting but um, before I moved to New York. Um, but man, I remember all that shit. And the pictures, of course, help you remember. And mm. I don't think I'm never not smiling when I'm looking back at those. Have yeah. you ever had like um, an exhibition of like photos from that time or like I'm general not, general times? Um, one let's say of that time period but um it's something i'm trying to do more of um it just is it gets expensive if it's a solo show but i did one last year of adam green and of that cribs adam green uh tour minor minor love and ignore the ignorant um at the morrison hotel gallery in in soho and that was like a big deal because they're like the name of uh, music galleries i guess um so we had an opening there and that was a lot of fun and, and yeah, it inspired me to like not sit on my ass and like do more of these types of things, but I would like to do a more broad one and I'd like to do actually a group show with others from that era. Um, cause I think they're a lot of fun, but the Adam Green one was, uh, it's called honest by honor. He fell down upon us, which is a line from one of the minor love tracks. Yeah. So that's actually on my website. Um, and prints are still available. There's still a few left. If you, anyone listening loves Adam Green as much as me. <laughs> um, but yeah, that was quite a wild, a wild uh, phase in, in both of our lives, I guess. So we were staying up a lot and going out a lot and experimenting. And uh, I was there taking, taking photos. So I, I really do have a lot of Adam stuff more than I thought. Um, but that's not a bad thing. And yeah, this, this, uh, gallery show was, was great. And there was a lot of love. A lot of people came out and it, it was, it was a good feeling. So yeah, something I, I should try and do more of. Was Macaulay Culkin knocking around at that point as well with Adam Green? He was, but honestly, I was just getting to know Mac and he had gone through a lot of shit in terms of like, just even being able to be out and walk the streets. You know what I mean? Like he still gets, the attention or the unwanted attention for obviously his famous role in uh, home alone. He's, I guess found a place or a spot where he's more about, um, or at ease with that now in his life. Um, but yeah, cause we just met, I wasn't going to be like, Hey, pose for a portrait, but you know, there's certain people like that who I kind of do regret. Maybe I should have been a bit more forthright, but it's a, it's a, it's a fine line and you don't want to push it. And I'm sure at some point, that will happen, you know. So, um, yeah, but yeah, he's a really sweet guy um, from our interactions and funny. I remember, I remember meeting uh, Macaulay Culkin actually with with Adam um, at Leeds Cockpit and um, Leeds Cockpit. That's random. Yeah, and I'd met, I'd only met him a couple of times, but yeah, I remember sitting, I remember sat backstage with him, and yeah, I was dying to ask him those questions about. <laughs> 
Home Alone, <laughs> but I didn't, didn't go there. I just played it. I just played it real cool. Yeah, yeah well, you... we, we 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 sat there and polished off a bottle of Jack Daniels. Isn't it? Much better. There you go. Mm. So I guess just finish on guy. Like, where can people check out your stuff? Obviously, you've got an Instagram and everything. Yeah, um, obviously the Instagram is just my name, Guy Apple E double P E L. Um, I had the website that I'm atrociously bad at updating. Yeah, it would be uh, my website and my Instagram, which I'm been using to post a lot of this era uh, as since I haven't been shooting. So it's been useful in that way to go through archives and kind of pick out some uh, reworks and hidden gems that I hadn't even noticed. Um, but it really sucks just not being able to shoot right now. So going a bit stir crazy, but yeah, um, Twitter, I, 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 it's more of my, uh, stupid thoughts that I put out onto the world. Uh, so Instagram's your best spot for the, for the photos. Yeah. And you get some good stories with them as well. Exactly. I like to give an insight and hopefully it makes the photo more relatable yeah um hopefully there'll be some new projects happening soon so i can uh share with all the world but yeah stay locked on to the instagram i guess Skips a beat, skips a beat. Can't feel no pain, but I 